If you want to take your Bibles and turn, we will be in Mark chapter 7. We're going to talk about filth today, dirtiness, and what can make you filthy. One of the ways that our society says you can be dirty or filthy is by eating the wrong kind of food. Now, in Scripture, are there good foods and bad foods? Can you heap condemnation upon yourself by virtue of the foods and substances, other than food, that you ingest? That's an important question because we live in a society that, on the one hand, tells us you can't judge anybody. Don't judge. And on the other hand, is constantly heaping up messages of condemnation on this very subject of food. Well, is it organic? Is it sustainably produced? Can you pronounce the ingredients? Is it low carb, low fat, low flavor, gluten free, whatever? (laughs) There's all kinds of, I mean, and every diet has its own set of righteousness rules. We see even in scripture that food is not just fuel. Somebody, some people will tell you that. Well, food's just fuel. Food doesn't matter, but food matters culturally and symbolically, it matters biblically. Food is more than the caloric sum of protein, carbs, and fat. Food is symbolic. It symbolizes joy and friendship. Acceptance to the table is a big deal. Boundaries are often drawn around food. If I welcome you to my table, that's an extension of hospitality, maybe even friendship. And if you're repeatedly coming to my table, that's me saying that I see you as family. There's a deep sense in which we are identifying with those we choose to break bread with. That's part of why it was so scandalous to the Pharisees and the chief priests that Jesus would break bread, that he would receive hospitality from tax collectors and sinners. The, the text that we have today, Mark 7, beginning in verse 14, is a continuation of what Ryan Aguilar preached a couple weeks ago, verses 1 through 13 of chapter 7. To refresh you on those verses, the Jews had elaborate traditions around hand washing. Just like your grandmother, they believed that cleanliness was next to godliness. And there are, of course, a number of ceremonial washings prescribed in the law in the Old Testament. But this tradition that the Jews had had gone way beyond just washing their hands for clean purposes. They had got to the point where they, if they went to the marketplace where they might have encountered less serious Jews or, God forbid, maybe some Gentiles, they had to baptize their hands. That's literally what the Greek word is. They had to baptize their hands in order to remove the filth that they might have come in contact with. They don't want to be guilty by association of any of that Gentile or unserious Jewish uncleanness. And then we see a number of the scribes from Jerusalem and then the local Pharisees. We don't don't know exactly where Jesus was when this story happens. But whoever the local Pharisees are, some scribes had come up from Jerusalem to spend time with them. And together they notice that Jesus' disciples, Jesus and his disciples, don't observe this tradition. And they want to know, what gives Jesus? Why, why aren't you following our traditions? What kind of religious people are you and the disciples? It's like if somebody walked into a church today and said, I just saw Peter smoking outside. 
How could he possibly be your disciple, Jesus? Jesus proceeds to put these religious hypocrites in their place. In verses 6 and 7, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And then in verse 8, he ties the bow with his own summary. Beginning in verse 6, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He then goes on to give a specific example, the example of Corbin, where some Jews would devote their goods to the Lord. Another tradition, and not a bad tradition to devote the things that you have to God, but one thing that they could do with Corbin is they could delay it until after death. And so all of my stuff is devoted to God, and I can still spend it however I want, but when I die, it all goes to God. But then some of them were using this as an excuse to not pay for their parents' needs while their parents were still alive. All my stuff is devoted to God, so I can't give you any of it. And in doing so, they ignored the specific command of God, the duty to honor father and mother. The the overall point that Jesus is making in those verses is that religious observance, following the tradition in and of itself, is of no value at all. A heart that loves keeping the law for the sake of stroking your own ego is the opposite of what God wants. I I put a question and answer in the bulletin from the New City Catechism every week, and the one the week before last was question 33. Should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anywhere else? And the kids learn the abbreviated answer, which is no. Everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. The full answer fleshes that out a little bit more. No, they should not. Should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anywhere else? No, they should not, as everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. To seek salvation through good works is a denial that Christ is the only Redeemer and Savior. Traditions can be good. Rules have a place. God gave many laws, over 600 of them in the Pentateuch, and they were and are good. But the moment you start to make religious rules and traditions the center is the moment you begin rejecting God. You cannot rule your way to God. Your problem is too deep for that. Which brings us to our text this morning. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he entered the house and left the people. His disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within 
and they defile a person. Before we go any further, I should note that maybe somebody here thinks I skipped a verse. If you've got a New King James or a King James, there's a verse 16. And actually, the NASB also has verse 16 in brackets. Verse 16 reads, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, both the NIV, the ESV, most modern translations omit that verse. Like I said, the NASB puts it in brackets. The reason for that is that while most Greek manuscripts of, of this passage of Mark 7 have that verse, the oldest ones don't. And so most modern scholars believe that that was probably a a gloss added in by a scribe at some point to underline how important what Jesus is saying is. And we can see why they would think this point needs underlining, why they would want to be putting bold, highlight, circle. If you've got ears to hear, listen to this. Because what Jesus is saying is absolutely mind-blowing, not just for a first-century Jew, but for any human being who thinks that their problems ultimately come from the outside. And that's all of us. We want to believe that our problems are outside of us. In verse 14, Jesus calls everyone together, and he wants them to hear this. He says, hear me, all of you. So he's calling these scribes, these Pharisees, his disciples, the whole crowd. He gets everybody together and says, listen to this. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him, can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Nothing can defile you from the outside. I'm going to spend most of our time thinking about the things that we consciously ingest, but I want to pause here for a moment and think about the fact that this is good news on other levels. Jesus says that nothing from the outside has the power to defile you. I wonder how many people walk around with guilt and shame connected to things that have happened to them or circumstances that are outside of their own control. Has someone abused you, made you feel worthless or dirty? Jesus says that does not defile you. Are you embarrassed by material impoverishment or a family that seems to be crazy? Jesus says that does not defile you. Things on the outside don't defile you. And that's good news because those things outside of us, we can't control. Now, along with that cold water for a thirsty soul of good news that things outside of us can't defile us, here's the bad news that accompanies it. You're still defiled because your defilement goes all the way down in your heart. It comes from your own sinful heart, your defilement before God. The problems between you and God can't be solved by getting on the right diet because stuffing your face with kale won't wash the idolatry and gossip and slander and lust and hatred from your soul. We desperately want there to be a specific set of rules to follow. That's what all religions are, is a set of rules to follow And most Christians throughout history have wanted to try to make Christianity the same way. That's that's our natural bent is we want to make rules that we follow to get to God. If I check off the boxes, then I will be okay. If I eat this certain way, won't God look past some of my other junk? Maybe you're tempted the other way, though. 
Maybe licentiousness is the name of your game. And you hear Mark's little commentary there in verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. And you think, how far can I push this? What all can I consume and still be good with God? I want to spend a little time looking at four specific questions when it comes to this. Number one, what about the food laws? God did did give laws regarding food in the Old Testament. We, We have to understand that. I mean, chapters and chapters in the Pentateuch devoted to this. It, it can't, you can't eat it if it has a cloven hoof but doesn't chew the cud. You can't eat it if it chews the cud but doesn't have a cloven hoof. There's lists of birds you can't eat, lists of things that live in the water that you can't eat. There's lots and lots of rules around not eating shellfish, etc. Our family ate pork loin for dinner last night. <laughs> pork was unclean because... Even though they've got a split hoof, they don't chew the cud. You can't eat a pig. Such is the case for many things that we Gentiles eat, right? So was God changing his mind 1,400 years after Moses gave those laws? Did God say, oh, it's all clean now, it's okay. Sorry, I changed my mind. I don't think so. Remember I said at the outset that one of the ways that food functions for humanity is it is a marker of fellowship. And it so to draw lines around food is to draw boundary lines around the community. We still understand that, again, at like an intuitive level, but it was very clear in the ancient world. You ate certain things to participate in pagan worship. You ate certain things to be a member of your culture. So a big part of what God was doing with the dietary laws was drawing a boundary. The people of Israel were set apart. They were holy. They did not eat the things that the Gentiles ate. They they were God's holy people set apart, and so they lived differently. And the food laws were a part of that. And Jesus, he says in Matthew 5, he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. This The food laws of the Old Testament helped cut the people of Israel off if they were being faithful from pagan worship, from acting like the nations around them. One of the things we see happen when Christ came into the world, when the Son became incarnate, when he dwelt among us, is the breaking down of the Jew and Gentile divide. But for that to take place, there has to be common fellowship, fellowship around the table. We'll probably spend a little more time with this next week. But one of the things we see is is what happens in Acts chapter 10. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. Is a, a man named Cornelius had just sent for Peter. Cornelius is a Gentile. The next day, as they were journeying and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call 
common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. It's interesting with Peter. He always needs things to happen three times for him to get it, right? Cock crows three times, denies Jesus three times. Jesus calls him back three times. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? And now three times, this is not unclean. I have called it clean. God Almighty has called it clean. He's given this smorgasbord of foods, but they're on the unclean list. And he says, no, I can't eat that. I'm too religious for that, Lord. And the voice of God, when Peter says, ew, that's icky, God says, not if I say it's not. Don't call what God has called clean, common. And this is the kicker. All of this is setting Peter up to go into the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and to share the gospel with him, but but not just to share it and leave, not just to like throw the tract out and run away from that unclean guy's house, but he's going to go be with him, break bread with him, eat his Gentile food with him. This happens again in Galatians where Peter and Paul are both, it says, going and, and Peter is tempted to step away from the Gentiles and only eat with the Jews. And Paul rebuked him for it and said, no, part of what the gospel going to everybody means is that we eat with anybody. We are not too good to eat with others, regardless of what their background is, regardless of the food that's on the table. If Jesus is going to, or if Peter is going to spend time with Cornelius, eat with him and proclaim the gospel in his house, then he must be able to eat food that at once was considered anathema. Why was this okay? Because the fundamental reason for the food laws, the visible setting apart of the people of God, now functions differently in the Christian era. It's not abolished. It's fulfilled. We who are set apart by Christ, when we believe in Christ, he sets us apart by giving us the Holy Spirit. He doesn't give us a set of food laws. He gives us his spirit to set us apart. 1 Peter 1 verse 2 speaks of believers who have, as those who have been set apart by the Holy Spirit, made holy. And this holiness of being in Christ by the Spirit does express itself around food. It's the food of communion. We eat the bread representing Christ's body broken for us. We drink the wine symbolizing his blood shed in our place. God's people are no longer defined by what they don't eat, but by the meal that we do share together. We're not hiding from things that would make us unclean. Rather, we gather around the meal of communion because we already have been made clean by Jesus. So that takes us to what we might call modern food laws. It is not an exaggeration to say that the language around food is quite often religious sounding. And it is often adhered to with religious ferocity. Every diet has its own religious zealots who are sure that those who don't eat their way are on the path to perdition or at least to a miserable life. I remember when I was a kid, it seemed like half the women I knew were avoiding fatty foods like the plague, or at least pretending to. On the other hand, we've spent the last 15 or 20 years constantly hearing nonstop about how white bread, white rice, and white potatoes are going to kill us all. Should Christians join the moral food crusades and judge others by their GMOs or what 
if they hit their macros. Jesus addressed this directly with the disciples in verses 17 through 19. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? So here's the principle. If it's going to end up in the toilet, it's maybe not the sort of thing to judge somebody over. That's just exactly what Jesus says. I barely paraphrased it. It's also not the sort of thing to feel guilt over. That's not to say we shouldn't live wisely. It may not be the best idea to drink a 12-pack of pop every day. Maybe I do need to uh, keep counting my calories to lose some weight so that I have more energy for my family and to serve the church better. If you've got food allergies or need to restrict your diet in some way in order to feel better, by all means, do it. But that's, and these are issues of wisdom, not law. And we are so desperately grasping for laws when most of what Scripture tells us to do is here are these few rules in order to obey Christ. Now the rest of it you need to live in wisdom based on your time and who you are and the place God has put you. That, that's what the whole book of Proverbs is about is learning wisdom knowing how to act in certain circumstances. And most of food falls into the realm of wisdom, not law. Romans 14, verses 17 through 19 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So, we shouldn't judge one another over food, nor think that we accomplish our own righteousness through the dinner plate. But that might beg the question of your glass or can. Is alcohol okay? I want to address that briefly and hopefully clearly. First of all, that wouldn't even have been a question for Jesus. He commanded his followers to drink wine in remembrance of him. <clears throat> I'll be honest here, like I'm not planning to make any drastic changes to our communion practice right now. But I have started to wonder, like, is grape juice even okay biblically to use? It seems to me that Jesus used wine and didn't make exceptions to that. I'm still mulling that over, but just all of this to say Jesus drank wine. His first miracle was to make wine, excellent wine. Wine where the master of the feast said, hey, you should have served this first. Why did you wait until everybody can't taste the difference anymore? There is clearly at least some room in scripture for alcohol consumption within the life of a Jesus follower. Wine is pictured in scripture as a gift from God. It's associated with times of joy, rejoicing, feasting. Ecclesiastes 9.7 says, go Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. God has already approved of what you do. Ecclesiastes also tells us there's a time and a place. The next chapter in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. I think when he's saying child, he's not talking necessarily about literally a child, He's talking about someone who's immature and thinks life is a party. You don't want that kind of person in charge. 
Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, when he's wise and knows how to rule, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. It's a bad deal for the land when people get drunk in the morning. It is fine for the land if everybody's done their work for the day and rejoice and feast at the end of it. But there is a, a note of warning against drug, drunkenness here that ties across to the whole pattern of Scripture. God hates drunkenness. We, we see this as a warning beginning all the way back in Genesis where Noah gets off the ark, and he's had a rough go of it, right? He plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk, and bad things happen as a result. His family is, part of his family is cursed as a result of his own choice. God God's judgment is often pictured in the prophets as making the nations real like a drunkard. He's going to make them stagger. The New Testament clearly prohibits drunkenness for the Christian. Last week, uh, Jennifer read for us Ephesians 5, and Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, So notice the contrast. You can be drunk, which is debauched, or you can be filled with the Spirit. The principle here should be clear. God gave wine, and we can probably extend this logically to include, at least in reason, bourbon or blue moon. He gave them like bread and meat and all good things for our enjoyment. But if they are abused, there is real danger, true danger. This calls for wisdom. Again, not a neat set of rules. Abstaining from alcohol may well be the right choice. For many people. But we should be able to love and enjoy and encourage Christians who have a different practice from us on this matter. This is not something we should break fellowship over. This is not something to fight about. It is, again, a wisdom issue. The fundamental point is this. What goes into us does not make us unclean. But in the case of alcohol, taking in too much can let an awful lot of your uncleanness out. Don't give control of your mind to a substance when it should be submitted to God alone, who is shaping you by his word and spirit. Which brings us to our fourth question, a particularly modern concern. What about marijuana or other hallucinogenic drugs? This is a big question. Like, what if I live in a state where it gets legalized? Or I'm visiting a state where it's been legalized. Well, first of all, Romans 13 says, obey the authorities over you, and it's still federally illegal, so it's still actually against the law. But aside from that, Jesus declared all foods clean, right? Didn't Genesis say God gave us every green herb? I've had these discussions with literally these verses coming up. Every green herb is here for our enjoyment, our use. I think this is the main problem with that line of thinking. The main use of of marijuana or other hallucinogens is to distort the mind in a way that I think fits the biblical definition of and prohibition against drunkenness, which is to say, I don't think there is ever a case in which you as a Christian should be taking those sorts of drugs because you're giving control of your mind over to a substance. And that's antithetical to giving control of your life to Jesus by the power of his spirit. So the question is basically this, would you rather get high or rather get drunk or would you rather see God? Those are the questions for us. Which in the end brings us back to Jesus' main point. The question doesn't really have to do fundamentally with about 
what you're putting into your body, at least not nearly so much as what's coming out of your heart. What does your heart desire? What does your heart want? You're never going to go to hell for something you put into your body. You will go to hell if you choose that substance, be it food or drink or drug, over Jesus. The truth about the problem being on the inside sounds and sometimes feels like bad news. We know how to be good legalists. We know how to keep the rules. We can dot the I's and cross the T's if that means we could be okay. We don't know how to fix our hearts. Jesus says in verses 21 to 23 that from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus gives a new heart, a clean heart, to everyone who trusts in Jesus for the remission of their sins. He will wash you clean and renew you day by day to more accurately reflect him, to be wholly set apart in the truest sense of the word. So knowing and loving Jesus more than anything else will allow you to eat and drink in wise moderation and joyous celebration to the glory of God. Our hearts will be made fit to one day enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb, decadent bread, fine wine, and all. Because we will no longer be tempted to idolize these things. But rather we will enjoy them as tangible gifts of God's goodness towards us. But life between here and there requires wisdom and it requires deep heart work. It requires repenting of your sin and your idolatry. It requires a steadfast refusal to look for comfort in food or drink rather than seeking comfort from God by his spirit and his word where he gives true bread and drink as we encounter Jesus, the Lamb of God, the bread of life, the fountain of living water. Come to Jesus for forgiveness and heart-level cleansing. Would you pray with me? Father God, we need your help. Lord, we need your help, first of all, to make us clean, to wash our hearts, which are so full of filth. Thank you that if we have trusted in Christ, we've been given a new heart. But Lord, as it continues to be polluted, as the old man still lives within us in this body of flesh, we pray for the power by your spirit to day by day turn to you, confess our sins, and be washed. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Day by day, you will do that, Lord. Help us to walk in wisdom. Help us to know both how to approach these issues of food and drink and to not walk in judgment towards others, but to help them see their fundamental need, their need for Jesus. And Lord, help us even now as we will eat together here in just a few minutes. Would you bless that food and our time around it? We pray in Jesus name. Amen.